technical difficulties. We don't have internet. Okay, we'll worry about that in a moment. One of the most intriguing areas of Bible study is eschatology, or the study of future things. Perhaps one of the most famous indicators of this interest was in the production of the Left Behind Apocalyptic Fiction series by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, which also spawned four films. And maybe some of you read uh, those novels. Uh, They probably were very entertaining, and I'm sure the purpose was to get people to think about Christ's coming in judgment, but the genre of fiction rings true. They were simply imagining what might happen during the tribulation leading up to Christ's return. It's best for us to stick to studying Scripture itself, which is not always the easiest thing to do when we're looking at future things. Jesus gave us the outline concerning his return in the Olivet Discourse recorded in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we have seen that Mark forecasts events prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., which mirrors an unprecedented time of tribulation that will occur before the coming of Christ in great power and glory. Certain things will be present in the world leading up to both the temple's uh, demise and the tribulation. There'll be wars, there'll be famines, there'll be natural calamities that indicate the end, but they are not the end in itself. Before the end comes, we are expected as God's believers uh, to uh, face persecution to proclaim the gospel and faithfully persevere through our time here on this earth. So as we come this morning to Mark 13, verse 24, we find a strong adversative word, the word but, that indicates the dual nature of Christ's message. No matter if you interpret all or part of verses 4 through 23 to the fall of Jerusalem, it is clear that something else is alluded to here. Jesus did not come in great power and glory in 70 AD. The powers of heaven were not shaken, and he did not gather his elect from the farthest parts of the world. That event has not yet occurred, and it will not until the end when Christ inaugurates his millennial kingdom. So as we study this passage, we're assured of two truths, no matter what our eschatological viewpoint might be. First of all, Jesus is coming again. This is a central doctrine taught in the Old Testament prophets by Jesus himself, by his apostles, and the New Testament authors. If one does not believe in this doctrine, then that person is not truly saved. Secondly, since Jesus is coming again, we're exhorted to be ready for him. We are to be alert, we're to be watching, and we're to be working until he returns. So let's ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful today that Jesus is coming again. We're thankful that he came the first time to save us from our sin, But Lord, the word of God tells us he's going to come again and judge the world 
and set up his reign here on earth. Help us, Lord, to be looking forward to that day and working for it until that day comes. Bless us, Lord, as we look into your word and reminded of these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as we take a look again at the last part of Mark 13, we find, first of all, the coming of the Son of Man in glory. Jesus is speaking throughout this whole passage, and he elucidates here three truths about that coming. First of all, his coming is preceded by tribulation and great cosmic disturbances. So let's take a look at this here. In verse 24, the Lord Jesus says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. There are some people who believe that this still alludes to the events of uh, 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. And according to this view, Jesus did not come to the earth in judgment, He came figuratively to the church, giving it heavenly power and authority. And the gathering of the elect is not to be taken literally. It is a a realization that the nations are included in the people of God, and those nations are going to be reached now with the gospel. And that theory is based upon Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, and especially verse 13. But as we shall see, that passage alludes to the Son of Man coming in final judgment on the whole world. Now, as we look here, we see uh, this uh, first phrase, in those days, This is kind of an Old Testament expression that doesn't necessarily refer to a specific time. Uh, It really kind of focuses on what is happening at that time and the certainty of God's uh, purposes. Here it alludes to a time or in those days after that tribulation. Now Matthew is even stronger. He says immediately after that tribulation. So if Jesus did not come in power and great glory after the tribulation associated with 70 AD, he must be referring to some other period of time. So this is, I think, alluding to verse 19, where it says the tribulation that is coming is going to be something that has not been experienced in the world previous to that time or after that time. So it seems that it is still coming, and it's going to come at the end, but it won't be the very end because there will be certain things happening after the tribulation occurs. And notice here that tribulation will be characterized by notable cosmic disturbances indicating judgment. We find this type of language in the Old Testament passages related to the day of the Lord or a coming day of judgment. I want to show you some of those passages this morning. So if you'll take your Bible, turn back to the prophecy of Isaiah. And we're going to look at Isaiah uh, chapter 13, first of all to show you the usage of this type of language. 
Now in chapter 13, it begins by explaining this is the burden or the oracle of God against Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. So he's projecting into the future many decades what's going to happen to the nation of Babylon as the Lord comes and he judges that nation. And in verse 6, it says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. So it's associated with judgment. And uh, it tells what it's going to be like for the people who face that day. In verse 9, it says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. And then if you go down to verse 13, Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. And this is a time where the Lord is shaking the earth. He's shaking the heavens, even as Jesus mentions uh, in that uh, passage in Mark 13. Then if you'll turn over to chapter 24, we often call this chapter Isaiah's Apocalypse. It's, again, judgment broadening out now to people who are living on the earth, earth dwellers. Uh, Verse 1, Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface and scatters abroad its inhabitants. So again, Uh, It is the day of the Lord, a day of judgment that is coming to the earth in the future. If you go down to verse 23, we have this imagery again. The moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed. The Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. Then if you go over to chapter 34 uh, and verse 2... We again see this kind of uh, imagery. And again, come near you nations in verse 1 to hear and heed you people that the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it. So again, we're broadening out. This is not a specific nation. It's the whole earth. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations and his fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. And then also their slain shall be thrown out. Their stench shall rise from their corpses and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll and their hosts shall fall down as a leaf Uh, falls from the vine and his fruit falling from a fig tree again that figurative language that uh that is associated with the coming of the lord and judgment upon the world and then uh we could also go to ezekiel 32 we won't go there this morning but i want you to turn over to joel's prophecy not too far after daniel and read a few verses from there and again Joel's whole prophecy is about the day of the Lord. And uh, again, using this kind of language. In verse 10 of chapter 2, The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, who can endure it? And in Joel's prophecy, uh, this is 
This is like any time the Lord comes in judgment upon a nation, it is a day of the Lord coming for that purpose. It could be a nation, it could be uh, the whole world, it depends on the context here. Also in Joel's prophecy, verse uh, chapter 2, verse 30, <clears throat> I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire, pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved even during that time of judgment. So this is the same type of uh, apocalyptic language that Jesus uses to describe his second coming in uh, great power and glory back in uh, uh, Mark chapter 13. Now, it's difficult to tell if these things should be taken figuratively or literally. Obviously, it's figurative language, but also it alludes to things that are going to happen in a physical way, so it's likely a combination of both. During the tribulation, there's going to be unusual manifestations of heavenly light sources, extreme heat, meteoric events, and all kinds of things of a natural uh, event that people will experience in this world. The powers of heaven that he mentions here in verse 24, uh, verse 25, the stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. That could allude to the luminaries, but it also could allude to principalities and powers of an angelic nature whom God is using in judgment and who may well be battling in the heavens uh, where we can't see that going on. So again, we, we see this language used here in the context of judgment, and it's very clear that these are indications that Christ's coming is imminent, it is very near, it's during that tribulation period. Now the second thing we see here is his coming will be invisible power and glory in verse 26. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, with great power and glory. Now the verb to come uh, is different than the word parousia that we usually see in this kind of a context. This word means to come from one place to another or to make one's appearance or to come before the public. Now when Jesus came the first time, he came in a public way. He appeared, but he was a uh, the God-man. And people could not see right away the God part of that. Now, that was veiled to them. And when he came the first time, he did not come to judge the world. He came to save the world. He's going to come again, though, to judge the world and redeem the saints of that particular time. Zechariah prophesied that when Messiah comes, Israelites will look upon me whom they pierced, Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for our firstborn. In Revelation 6, it says that unbelievers will see him in a different way when he comes. They will cry out to the rocks and mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the day of his wrath has come, and who's able to stand? 
His second coming is going to be a time of wrath upon this world. As the Lord came and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in the first century, Jesus will come again and destroy those who have gathered against him and his saints during that period of time. Now, in this passage, as Jesus says, they will see the Son of Man, he uses that terminology, Son of Man, associated with Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 7 and verse 13. In Mark, again, Jesus has come the first time as the humble servant of the Lord. His glory has been veiled, but when he returns, that glory will be displayed. It will show him as he is, the exalted Lord who comes in judgment. Now, Jesus uses that descriptive term, son of man, about himself more than any other title And for the first time, he now connects that with an Old Testament designation. And we're going to go back to Daniel chapter 7 and take a look at that. So let's let's, uh, go back here and also look at Daniel's prophecy. Because it's not referring uh, really to Jesus coming to the church and giving it power but is talking about, again, end-time conditions. Now, we can't take the time to read this whole thing. But in Daniel's uh, vision here in chapter 7, he's seeing these four great beasts. And the angel describes these beasts in chapter 7, verse 17, uh, as those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. And in other places, we associate these with four empires who, of course, are led by an individual. And uh, Babylon, Persia, Rome, and then a future empire that has not come into power yet. And as this is going on, uh, he's seeing a vision of the Ancient of Days beginning in verse 9. He says, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. So this is uh, God the Father, the Ancient of Days, as he is on his throne in heaven. And he goes on to say that he, he, he sees the, uh, the beast that controls the final world power speaking out in great pompous words. And then in verse 13, as he's watching in the night visions, behold, one like the Son of Man. There's the connection. Coming with the clouds of heaven, Jesus says he's coming in great power and glory. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. That doesn't sound like the church. It sounds like the millennial reign, where Jesus is ruling over all peoples 
at that time. And uh, the whole concept here is that he's given power and authority to destroy the beast who is the Antichrist and that end one world government that's risen up against him. That's what that coming is all about. And Jesus is associating himself with that as he speaks of they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And you go to Revelation 9 and you see that taking, or excuse me, 19, and you see that taking place. All right. So the dominion of the beast is removed and is given to the saints of the Most High back there in chapter 7 of Daniel. This is still future to our day. So we have to have we have to see a, a double fulfillment of what Jesus is talking about in Mark chapter 13, uh, Luke 21, and also Matthew 24. Now, something else happens at this time in verse 27. The elect are going to be gathered. And then, and then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. So this is a, a gathering of the saints prior to coming into the kingdom. I believe this alludes to the Lord uh, bringing together his chosen ones to reign with him in his earthly kingdom. Uh, just like in the first century, some of these people would have escaped to the mountains. Some would go to Jerusalem. And, of course, many, many more would be scattered all over the world trying to evade what's going on at that time. Now, when he comes, he's going to gather them to himself and rule with them. This is also the time, I think, that perhaps Old Testament saints will be raised up and ushered into the kingdom, according to Daniel's prophecy, chapter 12. Now, the Lord's gathering of his saints are comforting words to his people, no matter what generation in which they are living. It will be especially encouraging in times of persecution in the future. Now, with all that in mind... the Lord gives the assurance of his coming, that it is going to happen. And we see this in the rest of the chapter. First of all, he gives the parable of the fig tree in verse 28. Now learn this parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Now, Jesus has already used the withering of a fig tree as a sign of Jerusalem's future judgment that will be carried out in 70 AD. But now he uses the blossoming of a fig tree in a positive way as a sign that these things are going to come to pass. And uh, during the time of Passover, which is when Jesus was teaching this, the fig trees were blossoming, they were developing leaves, And this was an indication that in a short period of time, as summer arrives, they could expect to see the fruit of the fig tree. So just as surely as they could expect that future uh, development of uh, of the fig tree, they could expect the nearness of the Lord's return when these things happen. But what things is Jesus referring to Is he speaking about the things in verses 4 through 23 or the things of 
24 to 27. If we go back in time, uh, his coming in judgment would be near uh, in the first century. He is citing this when he's about 30 years old, somewhere 30 AD or so. In 40 years of full generation, these things are going to take place that he's been talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. That's understandable in the first century application. The temple was destroyed within that period of time, and some of the disciples, uh, at least John, would have been living during that time, although not in the city. They would have been out elsewhere. So we can see how that would be near at hand, at the door, so to speak. But his second coming has not yet occurred in power and great glory. So in what sense would that apply now? And the next verse doesn't seem to really help us a lot either. As he says in verse 30, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now, there is a a problematic statement. Jesus says, this generation. So who is he talking about? Well, we cannot escape the fact that Jesus was talking to the people of his own time. His generation is this generation. And if you go again through the Synoptic Gospels and nearly every occurrence where Jesus uses this phrase, he is alluding to his own generation and he speaks of it negatively. This generation, an evil, adulterous generation that seeks a sign, an adulterous and sinful generation, a faithless generation, and a generation upon which the which uh, will fall the judgment of all the previous generations that persecuted and killed the prophets, and that happened in 70 A.D. So it is this generation that the judgment will come and did come on the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem because of the rebellious unbelief toward the Lord Jesus, their Messiah. It also ended the Old Testament system of worship that Jesus fulfilled in his first advent. But that generation certainly mirrors a future generation upon which the judgment of Christ will fall, not just on one city, but on the whole world. The generation of Jesus' day saw the signs leading up to judgment, And in a similar way, the generation that is living at the time of the second coming will see signs and indications of its nearness. And all the signs prior to the destruction of Jerusalem weren't necessarily signs of the end time, uh, but signs of future events as well as what occurred then. So they were a foreshadowing and a forewarning of it. Furthermore, Jesus assures us that his words hold true and are a guarantee that everything he said will happen, whether it pertains to the past or the future. He says that heaven and earth will pass away. 
Well, we know that's true. We know it's passing away right now. The, uh, the laws of thermodynamics prove it. One day, the Lord's going to destroy, though, the current universe and create a new one. So guess what? We don't have to worry about climate change. And we don't have to worry about all the things scientists and politicians try to scare us with that the end of the world is going to happen very soon. No, that's all in God's hands, and we leave it with him. Now, all the signs, um, uh, 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 Jesus is making the point here that uh, as firm and lasting as the universe seems to be, it is not lasting, but in, in contrast, his words will last. His word is eternal. This is another indication of his deity, and what he says will surely come to pass. So as surely as Jerusalem in the past was destroyed, uh, in the generation where that prophecy was made, it's going to, to, to take place in the future when Jesus comes again in great power and glory. Now, in the prospect of his coming, what does the Lord exhort us to do? Well, that's the rest of the chapter here. We have exhortations concerning Christ's coming, beginning in verse 32. Now, although expositors and Christians have differences of opinion about what has happened previous to this and what Jesus had been saying, all the ones that I have read agree that these exhortations allude to Christ's return. Uh, so take heed then, because you don't know when that's going to be. That's the first admonition here. Uh, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Okay, so uh, on that day and hour, well, nobody knows when it's going to happen. The first century disciples did not know the exact time of Jerusalem's demise. Nobody can predict when Jesus will come again. Many have tried all have failed, and they all look foolish in the process. So we shouldn't try to be making dates about these things. The Lord hasn't given us more than the clues we find in this exposition. And if you believe the church will be raptured before the tribulation, as we do, then you are looking for that aspect of his return from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And again, we don't know when that's going to happen. We believe it could happen any day. Nothing really has to happen before the Lord comes for his church. So we need to be alert. We need to take heed. We need to be prepared. And if you don't believe that's the scenario, well, guess what? There's still uh, the signs that indicate his second coming. We don't know if we're into that or not. Uh, and we have to be, again, taking heed and aware of what's going on and looking for that coming. Now, Jesus says that no one knows, even the Son does not know. Now, that's a problem for some folks, so we probably ought to address that. If Jesus is the God-man, God in flesh, how could he not know the time of his return? Does this mean he's not really God? Well, we have to understand that Jesus is a man. Jesus came into the world as a little baby. 
Jesus grew up and developed as a child normally would. Luke tells us he grew in every way. He grew in in stature, and he grew in wisdom, and he grew in favor with men and God. And so as he's growing, he's growing in knowledge and understanding, probably in a more phenomenal way than we do, but he doesn't know everything as a human being. There are certain things that are veiled, and in his uh, earthly ministry, it was not disclosed to him when his coming would be other than the fact that it is going to happen. And we have to understand that this is part of the mystery of the God-man. It's part of the mystery of who Jesus is as God the Son and also the Son of Man. And I'm sure now that as he exalted at the right hand of God, that now he does know when that's going to happen because he's glorified. Now, he gives an illustration uh, of being alert and being ready in the next couple of verses. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Okay, so uh, this is like someone who's uh, over a household, that would be the Lord Jesus, He's going away to a far country, going back to heaven, and every person in his household is given responsibility as he goes away, and they've got a job to do, and they're supposed to be about the Lord's business, and they're working while they're expectantly watching his return. But the emphasis here is on the doorkeeper or the porter. He's the one who's kind of over the household, and he is just direct responsibility then to watch for the master's return and be ready for it. And it says here he's on duty all the time. Uh, For you don't know when the master of the house is coming, verse 35, in the evening, at midnight, and the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. These are all the watches of the night. When it's dark, when you least expect a traveler to be coming around, this is when you've got to be on your guard as well. And so uh, easier to be looking for someone during the daytime, but this person is to be aware 24-7 all the time, and that's the way we're supposed to be as well. So we're to watch lest we be caught napping when the Lord Jesus returns. Now let's consider the words that he uses here and repeats throughout. He begins with verse 33, take heed. Now he started out this whole passage with those same words in verse 5. Take heed that no one deceives you. Now you need to take heed because the Son of Man is coming and you don't know when that's going to be. So this simply means that you're to be spiritually alert and attentive. Be aware of the time in which you are living and that every day is one day nearer to, the, to Christ's return. He could arrive for the church today. Then he says, watch in verse 33. Now, this is not the same word as the other terms for watch. This word simply means uh, stay awake. Don't go to sleep. Be alert, uh, uh, spiritually speaking. And down to verse 36, Last coming suddenly, he finds you sleeping. Doesn't want you to be spiritually dull and uh, 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 
you know, napping when he comes. He wants you to be alert about the business. We don't want to be caught uh, napping when Jesus comes in a spiritual sense. So that has the, the connotation of being spiritually ready for Christ's coming, being concerned about our relationship to him. Now, the other uh, uh, um, word there that's repeated three times is the word watch as well in verse 34 and 35 and 37. And this word means to stay alert, to give strict attention, to take heed lest through remission and indolence some destructive calamity suddenly overtake you. Now the Apostle Paul takes up this exhortation in 2 Thessalonians in the context of the Lord coming as a thief in the night. He says, therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. The same thought. So we're to be attentive and thoughtful uh, of the Lord's coming at any time. It's near. We're also warned that this coming will be sudden. And verse 36 Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. So we want to be vigilant all the time. When it happens, it will happen quickly, suddenly, for many, unexpectedly. Have you ever thought about what you want to be doing when Jesus comes? What a motivation for us to be ready, to not be doing something wrong or selfish, to be about the Lord's business or something that would be pleasing in his sight. And Jesus' last words here in verse 37 uh, broaden the admonition beyond his generation to all. He says, what I say to you, I say to everybody, I say to all, watch, be alert, be on your guard, be aware, and be ready. So I ask you this morning, are you ready for Christ's return? What exactly does that look like? Well, first of all, we ready ourselves by believing in Christ, unlike the religious rulers and many of the people of his generation. We consider what the Gospels reveal about who Jesus is. Mark begins his Gospel with a statement, he is the Son of God. So you have to believe that. Later, Jesus states his mission for coming the first time. For even the Son of Man did not come to be uh, uh, served, but to serve and to make his life, uh, t- to give his life a ransom for many. So he came to pay the eternal penalty for our sin so that you can have eternal life and avoid the wrath of God on your sin. So you have to believe that. Have you searched that out? Do you realize that you are a sinful person under the wrath of God, and you're not ready for Christ's coming or your death until you know what your relationship to him is? And then, are you living the way God expects you to as a Christian, as a person who has trusted him as Savior and Lord? Uh, This doesn't mean that you're perfected, but it does mean that you're seeking his strength to live a a life that pleases him uh, in his power and to please God and not yourself. So you're watching out for your relationship to him each and every day. And then are you anticipating the Lord's return? Do you want it to be today? Are you excited about heaven and the kingdom of God? 
If you knew he was coming today, is there anything in your life that you would change or do differently? These are all facets of being ready for Christ's return. Some of us may be taken up in the rapture. Some of us might be taken up in death to be with the Lord. Whatever it may be, are you ready? Let's ask God's blessing. Heavenly Father, we're thankful again today that Jesus reveals to us the truth of his second coming. We're thankful, Lord, he came the first time to lay down his life for our salvation from sin. We're thankful, Lord, he rose again from the grave and now sits at your right hand. And, Lord, we're thankful that he awaits uh, his coming where he will judge the unfaithful world and redeem his saints and live with us, reigning in his kingdom. Help us, Lord, to be looking forward to that day and living each day as though it will be today. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.